This is a Federal News Network podcast. The latest attempt to give small business government contractors a boost comes at a strange time in federal acquisition. The Biden administration aims to double the percentage of contracts going to small, disadvantaged businesses in 2022. But this at a time when the number of small firms is shrinking. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller covers the challenges agencies face in meeting the Biden administration's new small business goals. Jason, what exactly is the White House calling for? Tom, over the course of the last couple of weeks, what the White House has, has slowly gotten to and, and really put together back in uh, early December was a really push towards improving federal contracting, specifically for small disadvantaged businesses, for women-owned businesses, for veteran, d- disabled veteran small businesses, and for hub-zone businesses. First of all, they're saying we're going to increase the amount of money going to small disadvantaged businesses for federal contracts, uh, up to 11% from 5%. The goal is to get to 15% by 2025. That's a pretty huge increase because currently, as, as it said, from 5 to 11%, that's, that's more than doubling. But they're also looking at other things. They're looking at category management. And this is something that's been going on since the Obama administration. And really what they've kind of come to finally come around to, Tom, and many of us have been calling this out for the last three, four, five, six years, is category management really has Im- impacted small businesses. So they're trying to look at small category management maybe in a different way to say, hey, can we re-look at it to say uh, category management can do things differently, right? So uh, as an example, Tom, category management used to look to consolidate contracts, so the a smaller number of small firms would win more, more of the money, and that actually hurt the industrial base. So what they're basically saying is they're going to give automatic credit under category management for all words made to social and economic small businesses beginning in 2022. It reinforces the small business goal of what can be what is around category management principles, which can, is includes spend under management, among other things. And these ideas of these best in class solutions. And Tom, you know me, I could go on for an hour about why best in class solutions from a contracting perspective is not only an awful name, but it really doesn't make sense in the, in the broader scheme of things. A couple other things they're trying to do is hold small business contracting goals accountable, hold those, hold the people who are responsible for them accountable uh, and, 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 and senior executive service members accountable for meeting those goals within the acquisition workforce. And finally, they're ensuring that the uh, Office of Small and Disadvantaged Business Utilization, OSDBUs, those directors have direct access to senior leadership within the agency so they can bring concerns, whether it's contract bundling or other concerns to their attention to get it taken care of. Tom, that's just a few of the several things that the administration is trying to do. Yeah, that is a big lift. And apparently these are going to be hard to achieve, especially the number of small business contracts if the companies aren't there. What we've seen over the last five years is a really shrinking of this of the industrial base for small businesses. Now, the good news on one hand, Tom, is more money is going to small businesses. Uh, 26% of all federal contract spending went to small businesses in 2020. We don't have 2021 numbers yet, but that exceeded the 23% contracting goal. So that's great. Uh, then the numbers for 8A firms, women-owned firms, service-disabled, veteran-owned small businesses, hub-zone firms, uh, small disadvantaged firms, all those contract dollars are gone up, up, up since 2015. But at the same time, and this is where the, the challenge is, the number of 
contractors in these markets have shrunk. According to the U.S. Women's Chamber of Commerce, there are 21,700 fewer small business federal contractors in the market today than there was in 2017. And the socioeconomic categories also took hits with the largest decline, unfortunately, by women-owned firms. On top of that, Tom, you have mergers and acquisitions. That has really been eating up a lot of the small business marketplace. I looked up some data from uh, Jennifer Schultz and Associates, and they found that just there were 210 mergers and acquisitions in the federal market in 2021. That's up from 133 in 2020 and up from 77 in 2016. Now, to be clear, not all of these are small firms. Sometimes this activity is two big firms getting together. We've seen that time and again. Sure. But the small businesses are definitely getting hit by mergers and acquisitions. And Tom, I'll just point out one more thing. I had a lunch just the other day, one of the FCA Nova events, and I sat down next to a small business owner, and he just gave me a little bit of anecdotal evidence that says, hey, this is even harder during the pandemic. We can't get in front of our customers. We can't get their time on the phone or email or through through video teleconference calls. So yes, that's one anecdote, but you see it from surveys from places like Dell Tech. It's harder to coordinate with clients, and small businesses are seeing delays and cancellations and contracts. So the environment is tough right now, to say the least. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. And so can the White House do anything to grow the small business industrial base? Maybe they think these goals will attract companies. And how can they motivate agencies to use them? What kind of leverage have they got? I think there's two things that are happening here. Tom, I think you're absolutely right. Can they attract more people into the market? The answer is yes, of course. But are these companies ready to serve as prime contractors. And for many small businesses, they have to build it up. They have to start as subcontractors and then move to a prime contractors. There are very few contractors who can jump in and be like, okay, I'm ready to be a prime for the federal market. And not only that, Tom, there's there's a lot of challenges to being, uh, being a prime contractor for the federal market. There's financial management type of challenges. You have to have the right systems in place. You have to understand the, the, the what you're trying to get to. It's There's so many things that are out there that I think the, the small business entering the market just is not prepared for. So I think you're going to see a lot of push from both private sector organizations and um, and, and the Small Business Administration to help these firms get in. Uh, I, I was at the National Contract Management Association uh, Government Contract Management Symposium event that just happened last about a week ago or so, and they actually uh, had something called Fed Propel, which is a new private sector effort to train small business contractors to be ready for to be prime contractors. Their goal, and this is a, is a pretty huge goal, to train 3,000 new contractors by 2030. They hope it will create something like 150 to 200,000 new jobs. But Tom, 2030 is nine years away, almost eight years away, and that's a long time. And these goals are, are trying to get done this year and by 2025. So uh, obviously there's there's some time here. On the other end of the spectrum, and I talked to Stan Soloway, and Tom, you and I have talked to Stan a lot over the years. He's a former DoD acquisition professional. He's been in the federal acquisition market for, for 25, 30 years. And one of the things he pointed out was incentives are really great. Get federal uh, employees to do more contracting. But is it just at the prime level, or do we need to start at the subcontracting level to build that industrial base? And I think that's something that you really need to, the, the administration should consider more closely. How can you get the subcontractors initial work so they can build and grow to prime and that's what is that what the incentive should do and I, I think his point is really important uh, the other thing he brings up which I think you have to think about is there's a push and a pull the goal of federal acquisition is to get outcomes for agencies to get the products and services they need to meet their mission there's also the diversity equity inclusion piece that many believe the federal procurement can play how to balance those two things because at the end of the day sure we hear this it's all about mission 
And Jason, while we have you, not to change subjects, but we will for just a moment, some longtime federal CIOs, acting CIOs, career executives are leaving federal service. Exactly. It's just this time of year, and it's always a little sad, Tom, I have to admit, when I hear about retirements. But we've confirmed uh, three big retirements in the federal technology community. Russ Roberts, the Transportation Security Administration CIO, is retiring at the end of uh, December. Janet Vogel, the acting CIO at the Department of Health and Human Services, is also retiring after more than 40 years of federal service at the end of the month. And finally, Ron Bertra, the Justice Department's Chief Technology Officer, is leaving on December 17th to go back to the private sector. All three of those folks have made a pretty big impact in the federal community. It's always a little sad to see them leaving. Uh, Tom, and there's also uh, several others that are that are out there. Jordan Burris, for instance, he was the chief of staff for the Office of the Federal CIO. He moved to the private sector. And of course, Carlton Shuffleberger, uh, a longtime GSA employee, 37 plus years at GSA and, and in the federal service, he's also retiring. So, so a lot going on and very sad. And, and Tom, let me put this out there. If folks know of other folks who are retiring. We love to hear that type of thing. Not that we want them to retire, but this is, you know, important news. So I would encourage them to share it with us. They can find both me and you on federalnewsnetwork.com. Our, our email addresses are easily found. That's right. And you want to get some publicity if you're leaving, especially if you plan on going to the private sector. We, we can help get the name out more. And who knows who might pick you up? Absolutely. And I think one of the things about these this latest set of retirements is, is specifically at HHS, Tom, is Janet Vogel, who I think uh, has, has not has only been the acting CIO since June, but she is now the sixth CIO at HHS over the last six years. There's something that has to be done at HHS to get some more continuity and some more stability in that CIO role at HHS. One person I spoke with said, well, maybe it's time to think about it, make it at Schedule C or a political appointee position, because obviously the career folks are shuffling in and out, and it's not necessarily the career folks' fault. It may be the management fault. It may be the political appointee's fault. It's, it's so hard to say, but that kind of turnover is not healthy for any agency. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Be sure to check out his latest reporter's notebook. It's now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life 
And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with 
uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. <laughs> um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gain the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect, thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the US Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.